Saul. Season 3, Episode 7, Expenses is over, but we're just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who are daisy fresh after a wet wipe shower. I'm Rob Sestrino. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Rob, how did you know how I began my day? How dare you? Like, it's just something that I think is very private. Did it's you do my one or thing. two? Oh, you got to do two, don't you? You, you have to do, do two. two. You got to do two. You got to go over it. Yeah. Got to. You got to. Antonio, <laughs> before we get started, can you just update me? Is your podcaster's uh, practice insurance up to date? Listen, I paid for the year up front because I knew I'd have this uh, heavy period uh, of all these podcasts together in one in one uh, shot. So, yeah, I, uh, I I I made sure I'm good. How about you? Are you OK? Yes. Yes. Uh, I've actually, you know, I you knock on wood. I've actually paid ahead the next two years. So, well, you know, hopefully. <laughs> How very optimistic. Yes, of you. it was very optimistic. Uh, you don't want to get charged with podcast malpractice. <laughs> no, no, because they drag <laughs> you on Twitter for that. They really do. They come for your wig. Yeah, they really do. Antonio, uh, excited to be back here talking with you about the latest Better Call Saul episode. And let me just compliment you on the fine work you're doing on the Leftovers podcast, too, because it's a treat to not only get the podcast with you, but also to get to listen to you on the uh, Leftovers podcast you're doing right now with uh, Josh Wiggler here on Post Your Recaps. Uh, exceptional work you're doing. Well, thank you, Rob. It's and Josh, my pleasure. And Josh, and yeah. Josh as well. Yes. Josh is doing great. My, it's my pleasure to put that shoe on your other foot because it's usually me listening to the great podcast that you're putting out uh, about all these shows, about Survivor or about Big Brother or about the Game of Thrones or any of these things that, that you do. You're a busy, busy man. And it's usually me thanking you or being thankful for you putting out content. So I'm happy to return the favor. Well, outstanding work and uh, a lot to talk about on a what was a dark night for Jimmy <sighs> McGill. And uh, it seems like uh, Jimmy McGill uh, circling the drain all together here in one episode. Yeah, we, uh, we've talked about how Jimmy is the drain, uh, and Jimmy himself is certainly circling the drain here. This is not a pleasant uh, time to be Jimmy McGill from a money stamp. Money puts a strain on everybody, and there's no doubt that it causes problems for many people in, in business practice, especially the legal practice. And it can be very difficult, as it is, to do what Jimmy's done. We've seen this Jimmy McGill in other ways, uh, in terms of his early early on in the series shingle hanging uh, antics where he is sleeping in the back of a nail salon and doing all that by that by this design his life is a little better now he has a girlfriend he lives with her his life is better in that regard his office is nicer but with that improvement in stature in life come a lot more responsibilities and i think the biggest thing is he feels the most like a criminal he's probably felt since the chicago sunroof incident he's been made out to be a criminal by his brother and He's not really wanting to talk about it, but Chuck is a specter that's hanging over this entire Jimmy and Kim relationship and Jimmy's practice and everything he's doing. It is Chuck is a silent participant in all the conversations that go on with Jimmy and Kim and Jimmy and others in this episode. And it's impossible to look at Jimmy without thinking about this huge thing that's happened between he and his brother. This is very unfortunate fallout emotionally, and Jimmy's not even confronting it, really. Well, Jimmy is uh, certainly dealing with a lot. Antonio, after watching this episode, that I, I feel like that I'm pretty confident of what the Vince Gilligan, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul overarching worldview is. Tell me more. I believe that this show is uh, very much saying there are no bad people. 
There are just good people who sort of get chewed up by the system and spit out and then have to turn to their own devices to try to uh, make things right. If there was an option that was within the legal confines, they would have preferred to do that. But then once they get a taste of the criminal element, then they have uh, no choice. But, you know, it it somehow fulfills them and uh, they, you know, continue on with that uh, negative pursuit. But if there was some sort of uh, uh, whether it's a universal health care or some sort of like social welfare system that could take care of these people, they would not have gotten involved in the criminal enterprises that they get in. Ah, so you're saying Vince Gilligan is part of the deep state. Uh, no, he's <laughs> part of the uh, the liberal agenda. It's interesting. It's interesting that you think that. I, I think I as you were saying that, I was trying to think of all the characters on Breaking Bad and everybody. I mean, we have some people that we haven't seen that nuance from. That doesn't mean it's not possible to see that from Don Hector, for example, or from Uncle Jack in Breaking Bad. Like these are ostensibly well, we just haven't seen them. People. We just yeah. haven't seen it. Right. It's possible that if you go all the way back and we see Hector Salamanca at age 25, he's got a father or uncle figure beating him and treating him horribly and making him cold to the world and making him a hateful, angry person. Like, you're right. I think a lot of what we see on this show, and we're seeing it in, in obviously, the most prime case with Jimmy McGill, a guy who was a pretty dirty, a decrepit, like negative person in Breaking Bad, even though he was funny and a little bit charming. He was also gross and slimy and negative. We're seeing that that's not how he began as a person. And we're seeing how that can evolve and change over time. And we saw that same story with Walter White, of course with the people around Walter White. We saw the bad things that happened to everybody in that universe as a result of some of the decisions they made. They didn't start that way necessarily. So this definitely is a show about that, about the circling the drain, about the breaking bad, about all of those things. And I think you're right. In Jimmy's case, it certainly does seem like they're making the system be part of this, that there are these things that break people down. And the system is a huge part of that for Jimmy. But that said... My only counterpoint to that is Jimmy's a little bit scuzzy. Like he's the kind of guy that has always abused the system, that has really tried to take as much as he can get. When you think back to the con man at his dad's store telling him like, listen, you can either basically be a sheep or a wolf. Like you can be your dad and just be taken in or you can have an edge to you and be a little more streetwise. I think Jimmy from his origin has always been a guy who – is a little more willing to open his eyes to that and be like, look, if you don't take, someone's going to take from you. So you got to figure out a way to get yours. And I do think that there is some part of that that is dragging Jimmy down. That isn't just the system. It's in part like the way people have responded to the systems that form up. Jimmy has adopted that from a long time ago and is continuing to carry that through. So uh, something just to keep in mind as we uh, get more and more backstory. I think Mike also, you could say, uh, is the same sort of story where uh, Mike is a, you know, a, a very decent person. And then ultimately, because of, uh, you know, financial needs turns to uh, more and more of the uh, evil enterprise. Uh, but he happens to excel at it. So uh, just something to keep in the back of our mind as we go yeah. through all of this stuff. So uh, I guess let's uh, start and. 
then uh, begin this discussion talking about uh, what Jimmy McGill goes through. And I'm sure we can go through it more item by item. But we end up, I think, with probably a, a big question in this episode where Jimmy ends up telling the woman at the malpractice office or the insurance office about what was going on uh, with Chuck. And at first I was saying, like, I mean, he's been through a lot. Is he really crying? I think very quickly we see, no, this is all a scam that he's trying to pull off in front of her. But I was just left with the question of why? Why does he go to these lengths to con her into raising Chuck's insurance premiums? It seemed like pettiness to me. I'm not sure how you read it, but it just seemed Very like in petty. the moment. Yeah, just petty, like like uh, like Lori Petty. No, like uh, Tom Petty. It was just uh, it just seemed like it was pettiness. Like I really think and I, I rewatched it because one of the things after I watched the episode the first time that I thought to myself is when did he form that plan? Like when did he decide that he was going to use that opportunity to burn Chuck McGill? And even after two watches now, I'm not convinced that he didn't really sort of formulate that plan in the moment, that that was not his design when he went into that room. I do think his design was to try to get his own money back, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm interested to know what the listeners think about when his plan was formed, because we did have the scene with Jimmy and Kim where they're doing their grifting talk and they're observing people and it gets a little dark, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But Jimmy talks about Chuck in that scene. Kim brings him up. Jimmy really responds very negatively. And maybe he starts at that point thinking like, okay, I got to really burn this Chuck guy, even though at the time he says, I don't want to have anything to do with Chuck. I don't want to talk about it. He's clearly on his mind and it's clearly upsetting him what happened with his brother such that when he has this meeting with this lady, once it goes south for him and she starts it by saying, oh, are you Chuck McGill of Hamlin Hamlin McGill? He's like, "Uh, no. And then I think he probably in that moment formulates this plan to just be petty to Chuck. I agree with that. Yeah, you agree with that. So you're on that page as well. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like uh, a weird thing to have in there to have there be some confusion about, you know, that this is a show where I don't know if there's uh, too much wasted uh, lines or or dialogue where if that's in there, you know, I think that that's uh, very intentional. And I think that that's sort of the signal to us that that's. Oh, okay. He's like, uh, you know, he's on his feet. I think in the scene with Kim, we're uh, seeing like how desperate he is, but how quick he is on his feet to to come up with these things. So uh, I'm uh, 100% on the same page with that. Yeah, I think that's a good observation in that you can go back to that Kim scene and see him formulating such a plan in real time and realize that he is actually really, really good at what he does, right? Like he's good at running these cons and that doesn't mean he doesn't overextend himself out of emotional anger, like with the Chicago sunroof or like busting into Chuck's house and extend himself negatively in that regard. His weakness is his humanity in a lot of ways, but he is really sticking his neck out here in the moment uh, by putting Chuck on the slab. And the thing is, we had a question from our great friend, Johnny D. Silvera, Johnny wanted to know, I guess the main question I'm left with after this episode is what is going to slash can happen to Chuck now that Jimmy faked his breakdown about him. And I could tell you from a legal perspective, Chuck could be in trouble. Like he could actually become uninsurable. It seems likely that at the very minimum, his premiums could go up like Jimmy's would. And this is a tit for tat kind of thing. This is an eye for eye. 
you cause my premiums to go up. I'm going to cause your premiums to go up. But I mean, Chuck having a medical condition, not reporting it to his insurance carrier, reporting not reporting a thing which could fundamentally impact his insurance uh, and the level of coverage that he has to pay for, that could be considered insurance fraud. And that's not something that I don't think he'll see criminal consequences from it because there just doesn't seem to be harm here. But the idea that there could be potential harm and that Chuck McGill could be a risk for an insurance company, they could just drop him. I mean, he could be completely uninsurable. That doesn't mean he couldn't get insurance from another company, but it does mean that it could. this could go really south for him for sure. But is that where this show is going, where we're going to then get into Chuck is uninsurable and then uh, what does Chuck do then? I mean, we've never really followed Chuck's law career. I mean, what is the ultimate difference in uh, we, I know we speculated that, oh, maybe we could see Chuck rising and Chuck returning back to HHM. We didn't even see Chuck in this episode, so it makes me feel like that that's not the direction that we're going. But what is ultimately the difference between Chuck not practicing law and Chuck sort of, um, you know, in his home by himself? The question I think is, and, and where it matters, is Chuck seems to be a real specter hanging over Jimmy and Kim, right? Like, we see Kim blow up in this episode with Paige, and she blows up because Paige was digging the knife in on Chuck, and Kim doesn't feel good about it. She doesn't feel, she says to Jimmy, like, isn't there something else we could have done? Like, couldn't we have done something differently? She feels like they piled on a mentally ill person. And she doesn't feel good about that as a lawyer at the end of the day. And so everything that's going on with Chuck and Jimmy is, is, a, is a pall that's hanging over the relationship between Kim and Jimmy. And I think that that also is something that could play out with Howard. And we've seen Howard saying, forget him. He's not worth it. Go back to your practice. Do all these things. And you could really come back to the fold and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if Jimmy continues to cause problems for Chuck's ability to do that, A, it might really put him sideways with Kim. And B, it might put Chuck sideways with Howard. And then the question you have to ask yourself is, where does that story end? If Chuck does go sideways with Howard because of the things that are happening with Jimmy, because Jimmy won't let it go and Chuck, therefore, can't let it go, does Chuck kill himself? Does Chuck end up in a position where he is committed and his ability to practice law is done? Does that make Kim feel worse? Does that split Kim and Jimmy up? Does that cause a problem with Howard that causes a problem for Kim? I don't really know, but I just feel like it's all going to boomerang back on the Kim and Jimmy situation more than anything. And I think that's the big concern is that the more Jimmy really continues to be negative and, and horrible to Chuck, the more that's causing him a problem. Okay, I'm going to plant the flag here on something, and it's uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Chuck will not kill himself. That what happens to Chuck will ultimately be at the hands of Jimmy. Chuck is going to just continue to manifest himself in a number of different ways that Jimmy is going to have to take matters into not his own hands, but be responsible for the death of Chuck. And that is, you know, how he ends up taking a big step towards the person who is going to say like, Hey, how about a trip to Belize for people where that's going to be probably the thing that's going to push him over the edge from Jimmy to Saul Goodman. 
Yeah, and I'm I I think you're probably that that's a more elegant and a more uh, more literary way to to draw this together. That the suicide would be pretty on the nose versus Chuck dying because of something that happened that Jimmy caused, and we almost saw that happen right last season when Chuck shorted out in the middle of that co- that coffee shop and bonked his head really good on that uh, on that the shelf there. So it, it Jimmy has almost already done this and. It seems likely or possible, at least, that we could see a, another step forward in this. I thought it might happen in the courtroom scene in part because how do you top that he almost died the last time Jimmy really set him off? And I think that you could top it by having it happen, as you're saying, in this regard, but longer down the line. Maybe by the end of this season, maybe we'll get there. But it seems possible that, that this could be an ongoing thing between Chuck and Jimmy, and you're right. Jimmy cutting Chuck out completely, not being there for him, not caring for him and doing these things which cause more problems for him in his life. If they lead to Chuck's death, that's the sort of thing that could really, really weigh on Jimmy. I think you're right in that observation. I think your way is a lot more elegant for sure. Because we're seeing Jimmy and he's getting more and more desperate for money, that he's getting more and more pushed to the margins where he's going to start to get involved with these various criminal enterprises that we see more in the Mike storyline. We've already seen him show up at the veterinarian this season. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility that he's going to have access access to uh, different people within that sort of underworld. And then by his actions here in this episode, this is where he's continuing to poke the bear and provoke Chuck. And we know Chuck is stubborn and Chuck is starting to try to get better. And Chuck is just going to keep coming. And whether maybe Chuck is going to catch Jimmy in one of these things where then he can get his license revoked forever. Ever. And then ultimately, the only way to stop that from happening is to rub out Chuck. I just feel like that these two are still on this collision course, that the court case win does not change the uh, direction of this storyline for them. Yeah, I agree. If anything, the court case win is making Jimmy more desperate, as you're observing. And as a result, even though it was a win, it is a, it is a huge pill to swallow. And the system, as you're pointing out, is breaking him down. He's going out there on his community service. And in, we see the beginning of this episode really being beaten down by that. And we see that manifest directly with him, right, where the guy who's running the community service thing says, uh, listen, uh, you, I could make it zero. And then Jimmy says the exact same line to the guy who's bringing him the Chinese food. Like he says it in such a cruel, callous way much like that bureaucrat guy did. And that is Jimmy directly letting the incidents that have happened to him earlier in the episode weigh on him later. So I think you're making a good observation that this is something that the, the, the wind does not erase the feelings. And if anything, it's exacerbating the negative ones. And let us not forget, Jimmy McGill's solutions don't always end the way he wants. He sent Huel and Kubi to Ted Beneke's house in Breaking Bad. And that was simply just to extract a payment that Beneke needed to make anyway. And look how that ended up. Like, look how that went a scoot, as someone uh, might put it. Uh, look what happened there. It went so askew that Beneke ended up how he ended up because of fear alone. And if he starts doing the, the same thing with Chuck, if he sends people to menace him in some way, if he tries to really get at Chuck to get some kind of solution, 
that could go just as sideways for Jimmy McGill. And we could end up in a situation where Jimmy didn't intend to do what happened, but it could result in what happened. And as I said, thought that would happen in the courtroom. So for you to say that it seems likely to happen later, I'm totally on board with that. I agree. I feel like that is 100% something that could really lead to the Jimmy McGill we know as Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad. And we already see it uh, in this episode, his hatred for Chuck and the steps they took to get at Chuck in the last episodes that we've seen are really weighing on he and Kim. And this is a very unfortunate thing for them because it just doesn't seem like something they can easily recover from. Antonio, you mentioned the uh, we can make it zero moment from earlier in the episode. And then Jimmy repeats that back to the Chinese food delivery man when he comes with the dinner for Jimmy and Kim. Do you feel like is this the same thing as there was a trope in Breaking Bad where whenever one of Walter White's adversaries, you know, there were there were many different things that Walter White picked up from the different people that he ended up going head to head with and ultimately conquering. But then we see him do some of the same things, whether it's, uh, you know, that the way that he ends up having the scotch the same way that uh, I forget uh, who it ultimately was, but the way that he like uh, puts the towel on the floor when he's going to throw up like a Gus Fring does. Eating the sandwich, taking the crust off. Yeah. Right. Do you feel like, is that the same thing that's going on here with Jimmy? There's a possibility for that. We should look back at at other things and potentially track how that is ending up because he's taking that, he's taking that directly. He's essentially funneling negativity that was sent at him and, and projecting it onto other people. I think that's a little different than behaving like the winner of your season or like taking the the traits of a person that you killed or that you bested and taking some trophy uh, in a in a metaphorical sense by taking on some aspect of them or their personality. But I think I think your other observation about the systems uh, weighing down, I think that that's a that's a much bigger part of this. And I think we saw that a little bit with Jimmy and Davis in Maine. Jimmy doesn't really like playing by the rules. He doesn't really like these systems and these things that are put in place. I think what we're seeing more directly is when Jimmy is vulnerable and when Jimmy is in a bad place emotionally, like he is when he's on the hustle and when he's low down, that he has the potential to really take the negative energy that's thrown at him and really channel it and project it into the world. And to be honest, we, I think saw that, that, that was a very dark character moment from him. I think we saw Kim in a similar way channeling the negative energy and we saw the way she was with Paige who the Kim Wexler we know is very well put together. She keeps it together at all moments. She's able to withstand and not sink to the level of Jimmy McGill on almost all occasions. This was very much out of character for her. So whether or not it's this Breaking Bad Vince Gilligan metaphor thing or whether or not it is a very real emotional consequences of an activity that they underwent to vanquish a a foe. There is blowback. There is definitely blowback. And they are, they have PTSD in some ways from dealing with Chuck. And I think that that's what we're seeing more than anything. Okay. So let's talk about this episode in uh, greater detail and go through some of this uh, Jimmy storyline and highlight some of the things we haven't touched on yet. Uh, We saw Jimmy starting off, going off to community service. Did you uh, get where this was headed uh, when you first saw him lining up? 
No, I I thought he was going to be doing day labor. That's that what that was my read. I was like, oh shit, he's that hard up for cash that he's become a day laborer. That was my read. I I wasn't. I did not make the connection to the community service, and I certainly wasn't thinking about the last time we saw him leaning against a wall when he went and recruited all those senior citizens in Texas. Uh, this was a very different Jimmy McGill. He looked like he was uh, dressed in some dirty clothes and you saw the guys that were lining up around him. I thought day labor for sure. Yeah. And he's heading out on community service and the calls are rolling in for uh, the Saul Goodman productions. Now, did you think it was weird that Jimmy ended up putting his cell phone out there or does he have a special like burner phone just for this? I mean, why not funnel these calls to his law office? I mean, he has his receptionist still working there. I thought the same thing. I in my notes, I wrote, why not send to Francesca? And I guess he's just so desperate that he doesn't want to ever let these people off the line. If they're calling, he feels like that's his opportunity right. to capture that revenue. That's the only way I could think. Because otherwise, yeah, you're paying that lady. She's not doing any work for you. She can handle it. Uh, get him, get him on, get him on board, and then uh, you'll you'll make the sell. You'll make the close. But I think he's so desperate, he doesn't even want to let there be a middle step there. And at the point that he's getting so desperate for cash, you would think that firing her might come up before i mean it's not mentioned in this episode and we see that jimmy is really struggling with all of the titular expenses from this episode it it does and it it is something where the fact that he hasn't fired her and the fact that that was a non-starter for him when kim brought it up it really did at that time speak to his humanity that there was still some part of him that was a good person that he liked her that he didn't want to do that to her that he really felt like it was important that they not do that and that that was a huge thing that was going on. So later, if he gets into a position where he considers it or he's open to it, that is, again, a way to show his loss of humanity in the face of being stripped of his identity, an identity that he formed in part because of his brother's influence and that his brother's complete and total utter rejection of has really thrown him for a loop at this point. As I said, like the the timeline of Jimmy McGill in Albuquerque is Jimmy McGill is in jail for the Chicago sunroof thing. Chuck gets him out of it. He goes almost immediately to Albuquerque and starts working at HHM. And at that point probably formulates this plan where I don't have to be that guy anymore. My brother's giving me a second chance. I'm going to be like my brother. I admire him. I can do this. I can use my natural skills as a talker, as a people person and be a really good lawyer and make my brother proud. That's what I want to do. And then when he builds that all up, his brother spits in his face about it and really continues to keep the judgment of him and treats him like a criminal as he has all along. And now Jimmy is becoming one because his brother has killed that dream and stripped that away from him through everything. And we're seeing the very difficult ways that's playing out. He's not fully gone yet, but listen, treating service professionals in a negative way, like the delivery guy, uh, some of the other ways that he responds to people in this episode, the pettiness he's showing to Chuck at this point, like he's on the way and that's very difficult. And firing Francesca could certainly be a part of that journey, uh, unfortunately. One thing with Francesca may be that he's trying so hard to hide from Kim that he's going through this financial pain that maybe that would be a signal to her that things aren't going as well. You know, he's lying to her about everything. If he fired Francesca, I think that would be a real signal that things uh, are really hurting for him financially. 
Yeah, that's a great point because we see that multiple times in this episode, right? She says, are you emptying your bank account? Are you maxing out your credit cards? Like we know that that's what's happening and whether or not I think Kim knows it and is letting him get away with his, his nonsense reasoning. Like his excuses are, are half-hearted at best. Oh yeah, it's TV. It always makes a profit Uh, or, oh, I just have this system where I'm maxing out the points. Like it is really not believable, like those stories about where he is financially. And Kim is already Kim is already ahead three grand. So the next month is going to be really bad for Jimmy. And you're right. Like, where will he end up with that if he doesn't end up with this revenue stuff? And we see that desperation playing out in this episode with the deals he's offering these people for the commercials. And he has always succeeded betting on himself. But this is a position where he's going all in on himself, uh, very much so. And if that is not paid off in a timely fashion, you can easily see where he's going to turn to the criminal enterprise a little bit more. So he's taking these phone calls. He's talking with somebody who wants to do a computer repair commercial. I mean, there's something very funny that Jimmy McGill always does where he's just so patronizing to whoever he's talking to, where the guy is talking about like, oh, computer repair. He's like, well, you know, computers are our future. So, you know, like whatever, whatever it is that he can just like uh, say anything that just like uh, agrees with whatever they're doing. Yeah. Oh, and then later in the episode, like, oh, you know, taxidermy, those... you know, that, uh, yeah. that you know, <laughs> it's, it's an important it's, thing. Yeah, it's very important. Got to keep yeah. those animals stuffed. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, those grandmas, they want to buy their kids instruments for their recitals. And I like that he gets called out on it right away. Mm-hmm. He's like, buy the recorders. Like, we don't even sell recorders. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, OK, maybe my patronizing is really working here. But uh, yeah, that is a Jimmy McGill trade for sure. It's It's pretty great, really. Also, uh, we hear about the elite package in this episode. Uh, the elite package uh, ends up becoming uh, not so elite by the end of this hour. Yeah, that's a really good thing to track and a good <laughs> observation by you. That's how desperate Jimmy is, right? Like he's initially just trying to make his money back and then it becomes like trying to lose as little money as possible. Mm-hmm. So he ends up tr- getting back onto uh, the van to uh, check back in. And so he was out there for four hours. They're only going to credit him for 30 minutes because he was on his phone. I was saying like, boy, you're, are you allowed to just take phone calls on your community service? Cause this, this doesn't seem that bad. I mean, to sort of multitask. I thought it might end up with him actually getting arrested again. Like I thought it could give go even further south for him. And keep in mind for a guy who's on a, uh, who's on a felony diversion, ultimately that's a risky move, right? You don't want to say to your community service officer, the things that he said, it is, uh, Not a good like when you're when you have a lot to lose like Jimmy does, like you should not put yourself in that position. But I think he's not concerned with how much he has to lose. I think he's concerned with trying to keep that which he has. And he's not thinking about how much worse it could get. And the fact of the matter is, like, it could get a lot worse if he does get involved in anything criminal or if he does get sideways with the rules of what he's doing. It's a big risk for Jimmy. But again, I think it speaks to how desperate he is for this money. And he ends up giving like this big speech about like, hey, like this, like, uh, you know, are you are we going to stand for this? Uh, And, you know, he gets no support for anything. Uh, Yeah, because those guys know like, hey, we can't we're not we're getting in the van, man. Like, just get in the van and do what they tell you. Yeah. He and he lobbies to the guy. Hey, could we make it an hour? And this is where we get the we could make it zero. Make it zero. Oh, man. Rough. Yeah. Rough. And. This is the life of Jimmy McGill. And he, his point in that speech is like, I have to be given an opportunity to make my living. But nobody cares about that. Like, that is not 
what the system, as you're pointing out, cares about. They just care about him getting out there and logging the hours. They don't even care about how much litter he picked up, Rob. They just care about whether or not he is observing the rules of the situation, and he wasn't, so he paid for it. And yeah. not, not, a, not a happy Jimmy McGill, and we see that come out negatively later, as we talked about. But I do think that this episode clearly shows him, like, I tried to play by the rules. Like, I tried to go by the system and it didn't work. It's not working for me. Uh, nobody's cutting me any slack here. Nobody's cutting me a break. Yeah, and he doesn't like the arbitrary nature. It doesn't matter that he picked up the most. He doesn't matter. Not only did he try to follow the rules, that he picked up the most litter. It doesn't matter. Like, you're not going to get a break from a system that doesn't really care about individuals like that and is not singling you out for anything positive. They only care about whether you're trying to bucket or not. And you clearly were. So sorry, buddy. You only get a half an hour. And it could be zero if you continue to push back. And you're right. Like, that is a Jimmy McGill who it was the same way with Davis in Maine to an extent. Like, he wanted to make a commercial. He didn't make the worst commercial. He made a commercial that they didn't like that didn't go by their rules, but he didn't make like a really horrible commercial. And he didn't understand why that he, he didn't understand why that didn't work or why that wasn't going to be appropriate for them. And he tried to do what they were saying and he tried to follow the spirit of it, if not the letter of it, and it didn't go well. So then we saw how that worked, right? He just made it worse for himself until the point where they absolutely fired him. So that's his response in these situations is to just go ham and to go nuclear. If he tries to do it a certain way and that is not rewarded, he will go in the opposite direction. We have seen that happen. It is a character trait of Jimmy McGill. It seems very likely it's going to happen again here. So once he gets back from community service, uh, this is where we see the first of his two uh, wet wipe showers uh, that he takes as he's changing in the parking lot. And he's off to go to the commercial shoot, but he is getting some difficulties from his car. His uh, trusty car, which he's had since season one, is on the verge of a breakdown, much like Jimmy McGill. Yeah, good point. And that's an interesting observation, considering that the Aztec in Breaking Bad in many ways was representative of Walt, that it was constantly getting broken or attacked, that it was maybe even Walt's soul, people have speculated. And then by the end, like at a certain point, he's just like over it and he sells it for 50 bucks after just getting it fixed. Mm -hmm. And he buys a real muscle car. This car is Jimmy McGill. When he was in that new car, the Davison main car, uh, they did not, he didn't like it. It didn't fit him. The coffee, the coffee holder didn't fit. And that was a metaphor. This is certainly a metaphor as well. I think it's a good observation. Okay. So the, eventually he gets the car to start, uh, later on, we'll see uh, that he's not so lucky. We see the commercial shoot for Duke's furniture store. Uh, and, uh, we see our person, uh, do we know th this character's name? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I guess it could be Duke, right? Like could this is a, this is a good Better Call Saul does a great job, I think, with these with these performances such that we're going to get uh, we, we constantly are getting return performances from people because they like them. And we got a lot of mileage out of this uh, out of this Duke's Furniture Store scene, I thought. And uh, we see the commercial and it's interesting because. Jimmy is really overselling how good it was. I, I think we're being uh, led to believe that, you know, uh, this commercial could use a few more takes, right? Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I, I feel bad. Like I said, you get these memorable, you get these memorable actors coming in. That poor guy uh, that was playing that role. It really, he just, uh, he was in a difficult spot because he's dealing with a guy, as you're pointing out, yeah. who, in Jimmy McGill, 
just wants his money and wants as much of it as he can get and is really trying to to play it out. Now, it did look like Jimmy had storyboarded the thing. Did you see that? Yes. Yeah. So he at least put some nominal effort into this. He's not showing up and doing nothing, but it, it definitely felt like this commercial needed more polish than Jimmy was willing to admit. Right. And he is trying to direct the guy from Duke's uh, IMDb just simply uh, has him as friendly faced man, you know, better than, I guess, a uh, vigorous commercial actor. Yes, it could be a lot worse. Right. Exactly. You could have a worse credit. So friendly faced man. And uh, we see that you know, Jimmy's like, uh, hey, well, just like you're having a conversation with your friend Ron, just a couple of guys talking, which sounds like a podcast to me. It does. Uh, I would listen to Friendly Face Man and Ron uh, talk about furniture. That would be a good podcast. Yes. Uh, better than vigorous <laughs> podcast guy, right? Yeah. Well, ha have you been accused of being that at some point? Uh, many times. Many <laughs> times. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I podcast, you know, uh, two or three times a day if I can. Uh, <laughs> that, that does seem very vigorous. Quite vigorous. Very vigorous. Yeah. So yes. you got to be careful with that. You can't sit in the studio that long. You'll go blind. <laughs> That's true. So, Antonio, uh, they Jimmy is trying to uh, upsell now. Uh, so we had the one commercial and he wants uh, Dukes to sign on for uh, the entire elite package. But uh, Mr. Mrs. Friendly Face Man uh, would not want him to do that. Yeah, that is uh, this poor guy. I, for a moment, was worried. And look, Jimmy almost pushed him like he, he the guy says, like he says, can I can I use credit like the guy? does a great job of portraying that, that he could be a mark in this respect. But there is just a line here that he can't cross with his wife and that Jimmy, that's a nut Jimmy is not going to be able to crack. Like he cannot undo that, even though he's got the guy willing to extend to the point where he's going to take credit. It's just not enough. And that, that's not going to work for Jimmy McGill. It does seem like he sold one ad, right? Like he did the one, but that's just not, it's not getting Jimmy anywhere because he's got this huge commitment. Yeah, that scene ends with him saying, do you take credit? And I was like, oh, OK, so he I guess he sold them all for thirty five hundred. But was the issue just that Jimmy McGill can't take credit? Is it possible that that Jimmy McGill would not have become Saul Goodman if Square was invented by 2003? <laughs> That's a good point. Like, where is Jack from Twitter? Like, just come on, help us out here. Like. Poor guy like Jimmy McGill, an up and coming merchant, small business. If if he could just like plug something into his phone and swipe a card, we'd be all good here. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it, was that your interpretation of this? This feels like the Seinfeld podcast, Rob. Like this feels like this wouldn't have happened if uh, if there would have been cell phones. But yeah, no, it wasn't necessarily my interpretation. But I think it's a fair point that Jimmy uh, that Jimmy's in a position where. He doesn't wouldn't necessarily have to hustle the same way in this day and age. But the, the Jimmy McGill of this era of the show had to behave in a different way. But and could I think his it does law office take a credit card. Of course. So, well, I, mean, I guess like I don't know what their payment system set up, but theoretically, sure. So I just that um, was was credit an issue or then, you know, we should believe that uh, friendly face man was not serious or. I think that there's I don't think you can take payments to your law office. Uh, I don't think Jimmy as a can take payments to that account. I think there's probably some logistical stuff set up there because I just the other thing is I don't know how many of Jimmy's clients are using credit. But and so maybe that they don't have 
a credit situation set up with a scanner at that law office. You don't need Square to have just like a point of service terminal, uh, which they would have, you know, you've, anytime you swipe your card, like you've seen those sort of in law offices that I've seen people in, in, in private practice, even probably maybe not 2002 era, but certainly in the years following that, they did have the ability to process a credit card, process a credit card payment. But there's the issue of that is probably linked to an account that Jimmy cannot put any money into that Jimmy can't use because he's suspended from the practice of law. So there probably is some part of that where that's not going to work and that doesn't really play out the way it needs to for Jimmy. The Jimmy is a cash business Jimmy's in right now. <laughs> okay. All right. So speaking of the cash business, Jimmy is sort of like doling out everybody's stipend for working on the commercials. Uh, he wants to, uh, you know, uh, send the crew off to the editing room. We'll see him then meeting up with Kim and they're sort of figuring out their expenses. Last week, we saw Jimmy say in terms of like keeping the office open, Kim was saying we should break our lease, go someplace smaller. He said, hey, when I don't have the money for the rent, that's when we'll talk about that. And we see him here with plenty of cash to pay off the rent. But, you know, I think that we should interpret when Kim says, did you drain your bank account? Uh, like he's kind of unconvincing. Yeah, as I said, like it's a weak excuse. And it's especially weak in light of the fact that that's all coming out of an envelope in $100 bills. Like that is exactly what it would look like if you drained your bank account and had it all in one stack. So it also is what it would look like if you, by the way, committed a crime and had a large stack of money from that. So it's an interesting thing to possibly juxtapose later that this was Jimmy paying in his honest way and later his his dishonest way if he does go that route will look very similar to Kim, but it certainly seemed like a weak excuse in the moment. Okay, and we sort of ended up getting confirmation of this when uh, the Chinese food comes and uh, Jimmy says, no, I got this, and only has $1 to tip the Chinese food delivery man. Right, right, yeah. So there's this is a Jimmy McGill who's living on the fringes right away, and that makes a lot of sense, really, because he probably spent through his bonus money from Davis and Maine setting up the office with Kim. And he probably went to great lengths to do a lot of those things. If he had any money at all, I think he would at least be driving a car that could be like driven. Like there wouldn't be this big risk every time he started it, whether it would start or not. And so I think that that's a huge part of it. He's definitely on the fringes. And the other thing about it being a cash business is there is this immediacy, right? Where he's got to pay for that commercial essentially every week as part of his contract. And he can't sell he can't sell it back, just like his uh, malpractice insurance. It's a sunk cost. And so he's, try he's trying to get that money back, but that's like a there's a immediacy to that with the cash need for it. So he doesn't want to end up in any more legal trouble with a breach of that contract, with not paying them and doing all of that. So he's really trying to figure this out uh, in the moment, and even a dollar matters. So that's where he's at with this. It certainly matters. So, yeah. so then this is at the point in the episode where we start to get into everything with Price and Nacho and Mike. We'll, we'll talk about that stuff second, but keeping with everything going on with Jimmy, we see Kim go to her meeting with Paige at the Mesa Verde. Uh, we see right before the meeting, she ends up setting a timer and uh, taking a nap in her car. This is ultimately right before she's going to end up snapping at Paige. So yep. is this all just to set up that Kim is just uh, so overworked? I think so. I think that's a big part of it. But I think the Chuck thing is really weighing on her as well. It isn't... Paige reads that blow up as... 
that Kim is working so hard on this and she gives her that out. But that's not really it. That what triggers her is Paige digging the knife in on Chuck and Kim feeling guilty because Kim still has humanity for Chuck McGill. Kim feeling guilty about the way they treated Chuck, even though she does blame Chuck for Jimmy acting like a criminal. And even though she had that great blow up at Chuck last season because of that, uh, she does still blame Jimmy uh, for she she blames Chuck. And, and I think Jimmy, to a certain extent, for the way that that all played out, she doesn't she feels like maybe there could have been another way. She's really blaming and feeling guilty for what she says to Kim, like, I feel like we piled on a sick person like that's I feel like ultimately what we did. We came after a sick man. And that is something where you could tired or not overworked or not. Like, that's the sort of thing that's really getting at her more than anything. Did you feel like that it was sort of meta to have Paige talking about things that were said in the episode from two weeks ago of like, could you believe that he said that the Magna Carta? Uh, it just said like, uh, who talks like that? I think it's meta for sure. And I do wonder, by the way, uh, <laughs> Colin Stone, our great friend Colin Stone, had observed to me that that Michael McKean is like a legend at Celebrity Jeopardy. And that that Magna Carta thing is a, is like a Jeopardy clue, like the year the Magna Carta was signed. And that that character detail could very well be from from Michael McKean. And we talked on this podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if it was with Josh Wiggler. I think it was where uh, Daniel Feinberg had a great interview uh, with The Hollywood Reporter, with Chuck McGill, with uh, Michael McKean. And Michael McKean came off in that interview very much like Chuck McGill, like very, 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 very much like Chuck McGillan in that interview, he basically said, like, I never knew that Chuck was going to be bad. We got here and then the writers like realized it. And I'm like, hmm, did the writers realize it? Because they spent some time with you and they're like, this guy's <laughs> kind of a jerk. So this will work like we can make this work. And so I don't know if that's Paige being meta, like the writers laughing at Michael McKean or if it's the audience, like if Paige is meant to represent a sector of the audience that hates Chuck, the F Chuck crowd, right? Where we are willing to pile on him no matter how mentally ill we see him. And Kim is meant to represent like, look, we should probably think about the fact that this guy's a sick person and maybe we should take a step back and realize that. Uh, I wonder if the writers are thinking that about Michael McKean, but that's neither here nor there. Like the point is, I do think there's some meta to that. I don't know how meta, but I think that there is a large portion of this audience that feels that way about Chuck, that just feels like, can you believe that guy? Magna Carta. And like he says, you know, chicanery, all these things like how could he dare? What is this guy? There is this huge part of the Better Call Saul audience that feels that way. And the writers are probably reminding us through Kim. This is a sick guy. This guy is mentally ill. Like maybe we should feel a little sympathy for him. Yeah. So. With Kim and Paige, they were arguing over the FDIC requirements. Do you believe Kim's numbers or do you feel like was this a little bit of a Kim turning into a Chuck more and more? Like, do you think that she was just uh, misinformed or she was just really uh, aghast that somebody would question uh, her memory on this? I think it was the latter, and I think that there is a Chuck McGill element to that. I think that's a really good observation you're making there. I do think that Kim, as we know her, probably would have handled that situation a lot better. Uh, it sounded like, a, and it maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know how you read that, but I, I'm not... Uh, you know, this show makes you makes you want to be up on like arcane banking rules and things that don't make a lot of sense to me, especially even as a lawyer. 
But it sounded like there were minimum requirements from another state that were a lot more onerous on uh, banks than they were in New Mexico, that Utah had rules that made it more difficult for banks to perform lower, that you had to be better as a bank. You had to have better assets. You had to have a better performing bank to get the approval in Utah and that Mesa Verde had some assets that were going to cause them some problems in a state that was more strict. That sounded to me like a very dicey situation where you have to tell your client, like, listen, some parts of your business aren't good enough and you're going to have to improve them. It didn't sound like legal advice she needed to give her. She was simply advising her of the rules of the state, but it was that the rules of the state were going to be bad in light of the negative performance of their business. And she definitely didn't handle that very well. Yeah. And she comes back and realizes it, you know, right after right it happens. Away. Yeah. 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 You know, hey, um, that was really unprofessional what I did. Uh, Paige is like, uh, think nothing of it. Paige, Paige is willing to forgive and forget. I really do think that. I didn't read anything more into that scene. I don't know if you did. No, no. Um, I just thought that it was an interesting uh, character note for Kim. We're going to see that manifest itself later on at the bar, even more that Kim has some real reservations about where things have gone in this third season. Yeah, I don't think anything happened in that conversation. I thought the actress who played Paige did a really, really, really good job of changing the way that she related to Kim slightly in that moment. Suddenly, it wasn't a uh, conspiratorial or collegial tone. It was much more of a uh, patronizing or not even patronizing, but just like, uh, oh, okay, hands off here. We're going to take a step back and we're going to create some space between us here that I don't think I have seen uh, between the two of them. They've always been two peas in a pod. It's always been those two against uh, the Mesa Verde guy, the lead guy. Maybe we can get him on board. I think we can win him over. It's always been the two of them in the trenches together. And now in the thick of this, there does seem to be a separation that grows between the two of them as a result. I don't think it's costing her the account yet. And as you're pointing out, it does come up again later in this episode with more personal stakes with Jimmy. But I think this is the sort of behavior. This is the tip of the iceberg. The worse it gets between Jimmy and Chuck, the more it's going to or the worse it gets for Chuck specifically. I think the more it's going to weigh on Kim, especially because Jimmy won't talk about it. And I think that could ultimately cost her this relationship through other blowups. I mean, Paige is willing to let go. But what happens when she blows up like that in front of the main guy like that Mm -hmm. is a business ender. And that's a difficult position for her. She 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 got her one mistake, Rob, like fool me once. Like it's I don't think she's going to have much latitude to do that again. And Antonio, I know you went back and watched the Better Call Saul uh, back catalog before the season started, but doesn't Chuck give Kim a warning in season two about, you know, stay away from Jimmy, that he's going to ultimately ruin you? He basically does. I mean, in he he does it in his own Chuck way so that the message is, I think, obscured by the messenger in that he really takes it all the way back to when Jimmy was like 12 years old and he talks about stealing from the till. And he tells the story that while we know it is in some way true in that Jimmy did take from his parents. Chuck is chalking up everything that disappeared from the cash register to Jimmy. And we see in the flashback that shows us that Jimmy did take from his parents or specifically his dad, that Jimmy's dad is also giving away stuff to any grifter that walks in off the street. So while Jimmy was responsible for some of what Chuck is imputing to him, he was not responsible for all. And as a result, Chuck blaming him for all of it is lost on Kim. And as a result, his message gets obscured And it is not well heard or well received by Kim. But you're right to observe that Kim has been warned about this, 
that your involvement with Jimmy is going to be bad for you professionally. Uh, Howard, I think, has been concerned about it as well. Like this has not been something uh, Howard says, you know, it's smart to keep your business separate from Jimmy. Like it's smart to set yourself up that way. But the problem is that Jim and Jimmy and Kim aren't just linked from a business standpoint where they share one roof. They have an emotional link that is really weighing on everything that's going on here. And I think that that is more than anything. Jimmy did not want Kim to represent him. Let's not forget that. Kim is feeling a lot of negative energy over what happened with Chuck. Jimmy did not want Kim to play a part in that. She, he did. He actively did not want it. He kicked her out of the courtroom when he was at his first response there. So he didn't want it. She did force her way into that. And I think she forced her way in because she cares about Jimmy and it's her emotions for Jimmy that are really sticking her neck out and are causing her problems here. And that's the real, that's the real situation in play here. Jimmy also warned her off of Jimmy. So we end up then getting a reset of Jimmy coming back from community service. Boy, Antonio, he got a lot dirtier the second time. Yeah, he did. Like, I, you just got to wonder, was he really busting it the second time trying to get double time? Was he really trying to prove something? I don't know. Maybe they had him performing a more menial task. But yeah, he looked a lot worse that second go around. Yeah. So um, he really was uh, like markedly uh, more dirty the second time. Again, everything is progressively getting worse for Jimmy McGill. And so uh, he ends up with a second wet wipe shower. He goes and picks up uh, the crew and uh, the car ultimately uh, breaks down. They have to end up catching the bus. I thought they were going to miss the bus, too. I thought that was going to be part of it, right? Like this whole thing was going to un unfurl. But for some reason, the bus waited. Um, we end up going to the guitar store. Um, should we take anything away from that? Jimmy is sort of like uh, lamenting for this generation about how they don't understand classic rock. And, uh, the, you know, he weeps for them. What was your take on that? Um, I don't know. I just feel like that it was more of just a character moment than anything in particular. But I know that uh, the show does like to uh, really delve into the metaphor. Yeah, Jimmy is the guy who's, you know, he's repeated the, the chords from Smoke on the Water and all these things. And he makes references in a way that people don't always understand. I think in, in some respects, Jimmy is a little bit of a man without a country. Like these should be these should be his friends. He doesn't have many friends, Jimmy McGill. Like, who are his friends? He tries to be friends with Mike. It doesn't work. He is friend. He's clearly in a relationship with Kim. Uh, his best friend was probably his brother. That isn't going well. Like, he could never have really been friends with Chuck because of, or with Howard because of the things with Chuck. Uh, he's run Ernesto off. Like, I just don't know who are Jimmy's friends. It seems like he spends the most time with this film crew, and yet. He cannot even commune with them like that doesn't he doesn't have anything in common with him. We see a great uh, humane gesture from the drama girl right after this guitar store scene. But these are these are just not people that he's able to really invest in, confide in, have any kind of emotional connection with. And I do think I do think that's represented by the fact that they're just so different from this standpoint. Now, Antonio, are you fans of the Sklar brothers? I am a fan of this. I am a fan of the Sklar brothers. I've been a fan of the Sklar brothers for a long time. Uh, and so I'm happy that we got to go to Sklar guitar. <laughs> I thought that that was some interesting uh, guest casting here for uh, them to play these parts. Are they just like big fans of Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul in this universe? 
as we talked about, like this is a universe where you could always see characters come back. So I think that the when they can cast somebody like that, uh, and there's a possibility to bring him into the universe again later, uh, maybe they wanted to do that. I don't know. Uh, there's always a they like casting comedic actors. There is the funny uh, element of them here with the stuff and the way they were relating. So I think that that's part of it. And I don't know. They seem like they're they're. Uh, it's funny because I'm assigning them more value than they probably deserve. It seems like they're bigger than just taking a cameo one-off role on Better Call Saul. But maybe I'm wrong about that, Rob. Okay. What so, are they doing? When was the last time you saw either Sklar? Um, I used to see them a lot on ESPN. I know they do podcasts also. Yeah, Scarbro Country. That is uh that is their podcast. Uh, it's I believe on the Earwolf Network. Like they have good podcast uh cre- credentials. But I mean, I think that that's you're talking about. They used to have that cheap seats. Show. Can they podcast uh, two or three times a day though? Like, yeah, how vigorous Multiple are these podcasts stars? one day? Maybe it's a lot easier when you have a twin that can just jump in uh, and and podcast for you. Like sure. maybe that that's part of it. You can do the the body double action. So <laughs> you've they've, they've essentially cloned themselves, Rob. So that that helps to have a clone. Yeah. So they're uh, hesitant about uh, advertising uh, during Murder She Wrote. We end up seeing just the elite package take hit after hit to where Jimmy says, okay, this one is for free, but if it's good, then you'll do another one at the regular rate. Right. And uh, that is the desperation of Jimmy McGill. And again, Jimmy McGill is a guy who's willing to bet on himself. And that bet has usually done pretty well for him. So I'm not saying that this is going to end poorly. Uh, it could He could do well. He could be in a position where their commercial does well for them. But that doesn't seem to be where we're leaving Jimmy McGill by the end of this episode. It doesn't seem to be on an upward tick. Right. And he's not fooling anybody. You know, they say uh, desperation is a uh, stinky cologne, especially when you take wet wipe showers. Even <sighs> the drama girl can identify that this is not going well. She offers to give the money back to Jimmy after the commercial shoot. Yeah, I love that. That was one of my favorite moments of the episode, actually, because... I really liked that uh, that we get a little more character development for one of these people. Again, they they their names are just like drama girl, sound guy, and camera guy. They don't even have names in the context of Better Call Saul yet, but they're spending so much time with Jimmy, and I like the dynamic there. I I that that maybe they're not just in it for the money. That they like him, or it just there is an element of humanity that that we're going to lose with Jimmy McGill. So it's important, I think, to be reminded of it in those moments. And I really like that from the drama girl. I thought that that was a good note, and I thought that that was a good scene. Didn't add much to the episode overall, but I think to the to the whole the complex quilt that is being weaved about Jimmy McGill's humanity and lifestyle. I think that was a good a good patch for sure. I think a good a good moment for her. We referenced the bar scene a couple times. So later on we'll see uh Jimmy and Kim, they're out smoking a cigarette and they say, Hey, look, come on, let's go to the bar. Let's go out for a drink. And uh shades of uh early season two where uh they're getting ready to pull the con on somebody when uh, Jimmy is uh, hanging out at the hotel bar and uh, they're sort of like uh, looking at everybody around the bar. Sizing up marks and finding some, uh, some at least as appeared to us, like uh, some decent, decent opportunities. Uh, it is unfortunately, though, one particular mark who I think reminds Jimmy in, in their haughtiness of uh, of old Chuck McGill, I, I, that was my read. Is that the guy who's throwing the drink around and being so 
just upset and and flamboyantly upset and over nothing, just raging over the most picky detail really did seem like he chuck triggered Jimmy. And uh, I think that that is that is what ultimately Jimmy goes full dark and starts running this con. And did you read that in the moment? Jimmy goes through this list where he's like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sell him the fake five thousand dollar credit card. I'm going to do this. You're going to look at him and that'll be enough to pique his interest. And Jimmy is running through, as you pointed out, real time, all the details of how to run this guy. Was your read that he was intending to do it? Is is that how that played to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that yeah. uh, he's like, okay, we're going to sell him this uh, fake credit card. Again, I don't even know if his plan made any sense, but uh, he's like, okay, you're going to pretend that we're dating and then we're, you know, I'll, I'll act drunk and then he'll, tr- you make eye contact with him. He'll try to take you home. Uh, and then we're like, I, I still don't get how they were selling him a, uh, a fake credit card here, but um, it, it, that she's like, Kim's reaction was just like, wait, we're not really doing this, right? Right. And I I like that. I like that what it says about Kim and Jimmy. And that is when the Chuck conversation comes up between the two of them. When she tries to bring it up and Jimmy really just goes ham and really just shuts it down immediately. But I also like that we're seeing that Jimmy's probably willing to go to criminal lengths. Uh, we know that Jimmy is a criminal in this way. Maybe he rips off marks and people he thinks deserve it. And people we as an audience probably think deserve it in that his early con victims or most of the con victims we've seen have pretty much been meant to seem like they've deserved it. But this is this is uh, he's willing to go to this route to get his money. And Kim is questioning it, but I think Jimmy is there. He's already there. So it's not going to be a journey by the end of this season for him to do something criminal with Mike and uh, and or otherwise to get some money in. And I think we're just already there. Yeah. And we see that he is a real believer in this sort of like vigilante justice that he practices where, yes, he rips people off, but he does it to bad people. So especially when he sees that this person is kind of a despicable guy, then he allows himself where it seems like that, you know, oh, the old people, they're good. He's not going to rip them off. But if if somebody does have uh, some sort of like these negative traits that he can see that, you know, if they're a bad guy, he thinks that, you know, anything is fair game because, uh, you know, he's just getting one over on the bad people. Yeah. And maybe that's true to a certain extent, but it felt like he's judging these people and sizing them up as bad, like immediately. Right. Right. And he's using social petty kind of uh, annoyances or contrivances to create this this mode in his mind where they're they are certainly deserving of being ripped off for five thousand dollars and it's one thing when you're letting them buy you a whole bunch of expensive tequila but it's quite another when you're committing what is clearly a felony when you're already a felon when Mm -hmm. you're already on board for a felony that if you get caught is going to come back to you as well so this is a very difficult position for jimmy to be in and clearly as we see in the scene the fact that he's carrying around all of that Chuck angst is really what's causing a lot of this. But do you think that Kim would have been okay with just telling the rich guy that they were going to be raising money and Kevin Costner was here? Well, other than the fact that she out of hand rejected that Jimmy could pass as Kevin Costner, which is another kick to the kick to the Jimmy's for Jimmy McGill. Uh, But yeah, I think she would have been okay. We've seen her run these cons with Jimmy before. We've seen him even get a check and never cash it. 
So that is something that we have seen on this show, that Kim has been on board with this sort of thing and has enjoyed it. So it wouldn't, I mean, I think she probably would have been on board with running a little fake con, but then shredding the money afterwards. Like it's not something where she wants to personally benefit from mm-hmm. it. And then uh, in the final scene that we see with Jimmy in this episode, uh, we talked about the uh, malpractice insurance that uh, he's trying to get his money back on. Uh, is there anything else that you want to add to what we talked about earlier from this scene? No, not really. Uh, it's just a, it's just a, a difficult position for Jimmy to be in. The only thing I would add, and I apologize, we had a lot of uh, tweets and comments. I don't remember exactly uh, who this came from, um, but we had we had questions ultimately. Oh, it's from uh, Jason in Calgary, Jason D in Calgary. Jason said, isn't Jimmy supposed to get revenue from the Sandpiper Crossing case? And I think that that's a good question to ask in light of what he's trying to do here with his malpractice insurance. Jimmy is due money from a pool, a common settlement pool of a lawsuit. So essentially, the class action lawsuit that's going to get paid out eventually over Sandpiper, some of the money is going to go into a distribution pool to pay out the class representatives and all of this. And Jimmy's going to get a large chunk of that pool when that lawsuit gets settled. Unfortunately for Jimmy, that's going to take years, most likely. So he's due this money, but he needs money right now, like this day, this week, this month. And so he can't wait for that. What I'm wondering is, is there a possibility of Jimmy going to Davis and Maine or perhaps Howard Hamlin and saying, I'll sell you my portion of the pool and I'll do it for 10K. I'll do it for a fraction of what it would cost or what I could bring back because I need the money now. And I do think that that's something to track where we see him trying to do this with the malpractice insurance. It doesn't work. It seems to me like if that is negotiable, he might go try to sell that to someone. He might sell it to Kim for all I know. Like he might do that. But that seems like it's, it should be in play at some point here if he's that hard up for money. Okay, so we have a lot to get to in terms of Nacho and Mike and even the return of uh, Daniel Price. But first, uh, let's just take a moment and thank our sponsor. And I'm going to really dedicate this ad read to Jimmy McGill here because he's somebody who probably is in need of a newer used car and money is a concern for him. Money is a great concern for him. Right. Yeah, this is a this is a problem. And the other thing is Jimmy McGill's not the kind of guy that likes to get ripped off. Rob. He, he likes not. information. Yeah. Yes, he wants to know information. And that's why uh, Jimmy McGill should be paying close attention to the people over at True Car, because you need to feel comfortable. They're getting a fair price when you are looking for a newer used car. You need that pricing context information that empowers you to feel confident because he's certainly not a confident guy right now. And with True Car, you'll see what other people in your local market pay for the car that you want. And from there, you can connect with a local certified True Car dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. True Car is going to show you what other people in your area pay for the car that you want. Now you'll know what a fair price is so you can feel confident. And uh, certainly Jimmy knows what it's like to be on the other end of that as he is not feeling confident trying to get people to buy his airtime. Yeah, he would love to be in that position, right? (laughs) Yeah. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. That's competitive pricing offered to you only by a True Car certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before you go to the dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. And with True Car, you can connect with the local certified dealer of your choosing and enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster process as well once they connect with those True Car certified dealers. And best of all, 
TrueCar users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. That's like, what, two months of Jimmy McGill's rent, right? Yeah, that sounds like an elite package for sure. Certainly. So when you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. All right, Antonio, if we were going to get our Better Call Saul bingo cards ready, uh, and we're not talking about the uh, season one episode, I don't know if either of us would have thought a return of Daniel Price was in the baseball cards. (laughs) <laughs> nice i like the word play yeah we uh we would not uh, this is a show as we've said they enjoy bringing people back but jake m larson tweeted like what odds would you have given me that the baseball card guy would be back and outside of them liking to use the same actors again i wouldn't have seen a way for him to fit into this story and yet it makes perfect sense to me now that we've seen it yeah so we talked a lot about what was going on with the pill that nacho picks up uh and we're going to see that play out Chekhov's pill and uh daniel price comes home his alarm is beeping and once again nacho is in his house Nacho is in his house, uh, and this is not a good place to be for... Well, it's fine for it's Nacho. Nacho it's Nacho, Nacho house. It's Nacho house. Get out of here. <laughs> it's Nacho security system. It's Nacho couch. Like, yeah, there's a... This is not the guy you like. Nacho is just sitting there in the dark. Like that is not the experience that you want. If your last name is Playa or Wormler or Daniel Price or whatever these the many names this gentleman has used, like none of them are the name of a badass. This is a squat cobbler guy. Like this is not the guy who's going to respond well to this. That said, he's hilarious in that he's like, well, I would love to hear an apology. Like, you know, you should apologize to me. Uh, Like that's what you're going to ask for in light of this guy. Like he does not know what he's getting into. And yet he has been burned enough that he knows to make the call. He makes the call to Mike after this scene with Nacho. Nacho clearly wants to get a bottle of these pills so that he can replace them all with very negative things, something that's going to screw it up for Don Hector. And once he's replaced them all, Don Hector will just take one of them and die. And that'll be it for Nacho. That's what Nacho's game is. He needs some pills he can empty out here, these prescription pills. And that's what he wants uh, Daniel to do. And Daniel's not smart enough to put that together, but all Mike needs to hear is a whiff of that. He's got the whole story sussed out. Okay. So Nacho will pay $20,000 for these pill capsules. Everybody's willing to pay $20,000 for these things, uh, the, for, for things these days, Rob, like whether it's a suicide machine uh, or whether it's uh, something else like 20, 20K seems to be a very popular number. It's a nice TV round right number. Now. Yeah. Uh, perhaps a plane uh, to, uh, to Australia. Yeah. There's a nice round number, 20K. Okay, so if we go and see Mike for the first time in this episode, we see him working on the playground. We were a little confused uh, in last week's episode. Why was Mike sort of like hesitant to do this? Uh, we'll see him pull up some money. Now, remind me, where does Mike have all this cash from? I think that it's, it's probably money from some previous jobs that he's done. He got a big payoff that he split with Nacho when it didn't work out with Salamanca. Like when that all, when that all didn't go the way he expected it to, but he got some money out of it. He extracted a big, a big sum from, from Hector at that point. Uh, and to not really to drop the case against, uh, Tuco that to not testify about the gun. Okay. And so he got some money there. That was probably his biggest, uh, his biggest windfall, I think. And, He's had some other some other windfalls. Uh, he wouldn't take the he wouldn't take the the job with Gus, the full time job with Gus, and he didn't want money that he didn't earn. 
but he did some other work for Gus, right? Like he did clearly do the thing where he set up the shoe, the shoe job and set that up. He also did the, the job for Jimmy. So Mike has been working. I don't know what the most lucrative one of those things were, but Mike has a little, a little stash here. Yeah. So Mike is working on the playground. He's uh, setting up the cement for the sidewalk and uh, that he gets some help uh, or he doesn't really want any help. Uh, He sends some guys to go off and make cement and he is left with Anita, who is another eager uh, person over at the, the church. Yeah, I need a love interest for Mike. Is that what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Is that is that your read that she's a potential love interest here? Oh, that's my read, and oh. uh, I don't know. That if sounds I like you're excited about this. Uh, that hey, you know what we really need in this show a Mike love interest. <laughs> it was bound to happen, I guess. I don't know why we didn't peg that, but it was bound to happen at some point. Hey, and what I don't need love too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't deserve what's coming my way. Yeah, I, I thought it was great because what, in the typical I'm not a romantic lead, all of a yeah, sudden, here take this broom. Uh. <laughs> yeah, like it was, uh, it was not a good setup. I don't know how Mike would respond uh, if it, it, just Jonathan Banks himself just seems so over a lot of this nonsense that it's hilarious to see this play out. But yeah, love interest sneaking right up on Mike, and Mike is handing her a broom, which is not a good meet. She's like, excuse uh, it, me. Yeah, it works out. It works out. You know, it, it's funny how how Mike is, uh, you know, like, oh, well, you know, it just puts it down with texture so the kids don't slip when it gets wet. Like, it's just Mike being Mike. And, oh, what a, what a sweet man. And then he gets to hear about the horrible story of this woman's husband. Yeah, we'll just hear that later. Yeah. yeah, really rough. Like, Mike is uh, it's interesting because Mike tries to keep this sort of thing away. Right. He doesn't want help. He doesn't want to interact with people. When we talk about Jimmy not having friends. Mike really has no friends either. These people just want to help him on a human level and he is turning them away at all costs. But look, it is his humanity which gets him back in this negative position. He does not need to be helping with with Nacho. He does not need to be helping with Price. But then when we get into that later, there's the story that he's told and all of a sudden he's on board with Price. Uh, how about that scene though with Mike and Price the first time when Price is sitting on his uh his sitting on his his toll booth his ticket booth at the uh, parking lot what is uh what does mike say to him like this is your idea of surveillance like it's mm-hmm. it's really funny yeah i love those two he's playing that video game and uh he's like hey you know i never said i was good at this <laughs> i just love mike like this guy daniel whatever is the perfect foil for mike because Everything this guy does is a false step. Everything this guy does is wrong. And it just drives Mike up a wall. It's funny. Right. It's, it, Jonathan Banks almost yells at him like, you get yourself out of this. It's like he wants no part of this and he doesn't want you in it either. Like, put this to bed, buddy. He doesn't want to make the same mistake again. And so Mike says, well, if you don't want to make the same mistake again, don't get involved. <laughs> doesn't really go well for Mike. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back into yeah. a squat gobbler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no point, no. Daniel explains, no, it's Nacho Varga. He got in my house. He wants these capsules. He offered me money. And Mike is just like, tell him you can't get it. It's too late. It's too yeah. late. I already ordered them. And he knows. He knows. What am I going to we'll do? Make up uh, an excuse. You can't get them. 
I, I it's too late. I'm I'm going through with this. I'm I'm gonna do it. You know, like and uh, it is. Uh, I it is interesting because when he says it's Nacho Varga, that does pique Mike's interest. Why do you think that is? Do you think Mike still has a little bit of a uh, Salamanca? Uh, is it really that he's got? He's just that that he's got a little bit of a hard on for for Hector. Is that what's going well, on? I, here? I like, think that the fact that uh, Hector was you know telling Mike that they have people that are like surveilling uh, Kaylee, uh, you know that, that that just struck a nerve with Mike. Uh, you know, Mike does not quickly forget that. But he tells Gus like it, it was good to get Salamanca out of my system. Like he tells him that that was it. Like that, mm-hmm. that then he got him back. Like that was enough. But I couldn't tell. I still am a, a little on the fence about this. Whether it was the the fact that Nacho was involved and it might involve Salamanca, or whether it was Nacho being involved at all, and that Mike is maybe interested in working with Nacho, or or as we see later when he does meet up with Nacho, his biggest concern is Gus. He goes to the gas tank and starts looking for the surveillance and is thinking like, okay, I really don't want to be involved with this in part because I don't want to go sideways with that guy I met who seems like a kind of a boss player with regard to this whole situation. The kind of guy that got the drop on me and was following me around scares me a lot more than Hector, who was doing so publicly, the guy who was doing so privately and who I've now met and who is a lot more intense and a lot more professional I think that's who Mike's biggest fear is at this point. Like, I don't want to get sideways with Gus. So you think that it's out of fear of retribution from Gus? That's why he doesn't want to be involved with Nacho? Yeah, because I think he tells Nacho, like, there are bigger people to worry about than Salamanca here. Like, mm-hmm. there's more in play. and He's checked for the thing already. So I think Mike is, is concerned about Gus. And... Do you think that this puts to bed the fact that Nacho might be secretly working with Gus? Yeah, I think so. Um, I I think that that's probably uh, a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, tinfoil hat there. I mean, I think that we may see Nacho and Gus have an interaction. Maybe that was just like foreshadowing when we saw them have that sort of like glance back and forth at each other uh, when they were leaving Los Poyos Hermanos earlier this season. But uh, still something to uh, keep an eye on. Yeah, and it's possible that Mike will go to Gus with this and say, listen, I know you didn't want this guy taken off the table, so I feel that I need to tell you that this is in play. Like, I just feel like there's a possibility that Mike might go to Gus with this information on some level. See, my read on all of this is that the reason why we end up seeing Gus tell Nacho at the end of the episode to make sure you switch the pills back is because I think that Mike still wants to get Hector out of the picture and I think that he doesn't want it traced back to Gus like I think that he might want Gus to also believe that Hector just had a heart attack and there to be no sort of like evidence of foul play I completely agree I just think it's possible that that something else will happen with this or that Mike will find himself in a position where he feels like he has to put Gus on notice I don't know what that could be, but I could see a scenario where Mike feels like the next move here needs to be to bring Gus into the fold. And again, that would be a misread perhaps of why Gus wanted Hector alive. Mike doesn't really know the full story there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all he knows is that Gus thinks that that would be too good for Hector to die the way that, that Mike was going to put him out of the picture, which means that Gus thinks he should suffer for, for, for whatever else there is that Mike doesn't know about. But Mike doesn't really know. Mike just is. I don't think he cares about that. I think he's just happy to have Salamanca out of the picture for the reason that you said, because he's the kind of guy 
that even though Nacho said he moved on from you and he forgot about you, he's the kind of guy that directly immediately threatened Mike's family. And Mike won't stand for that. That guy needs to be off the board. So if Nacho's going to do it, maybe it's fine. But to save Nacho, I don't want there to be any blowback on you from this guy who I know doesn't want him dead. So as you're saying, hide the pills. But I think that's really fascinating because I don't know. Once we realize that Mike's not be, or, or Nacho's not being followed, I don't know what there, there, there could be any blowback on Mike for that. I mean, maybe Mike thinks Gus will blame him since he already wanted Salamanca dead. But I, I mean, I don't think so. I think Mike cares about Nacho a little bit more than, than we're really talking about. What was your read on why Mike pivoted? Was it because the story with Anita and everything that happened with her husband made Mike feel a little more sorry for Daniel Price and maybe for Nacho or was there something else to why Mike pivoted after hearing that story? Why was he in after having previously been out? I still don't know. Um, we see Anita tell Mike her story and uh, about her husband that he went for a hike and he never came back. Could it have been a sudden departure, Antonio? Oh boy, don't, don't, I'm, you're triggering me. Uh, maybe it was a dog, Rob. Like maybe Possibly. a dog dragged him. Possibly. Uh, uh, he never came back after all these years. And I thought when Mike got his phone out after that conversation, it's like I thought he's going to start putting in calls, put out an APB, like he's going to find Anita's husband and he's going to go on this next sort of mission and then just like come back the next day. And, I found him. Here he is. It seemed like there was a possibility for that, right? Like Mike was going to take this case on as a private investigator and find out that this guy is living a double life and really just ran off and isn't actually dead. I still think that that's in play, but I don't know why after that conversation he decided I'm going to go help this guy who despite all my better angels telling me not to or despite all my intentions or my gut feelings uh, told me not to, I'm going to go do this anyway. But I don't know if it was because of the because he felt bad or scared or worried about price or if it was Nacho or his family or what the concern was there that made him pivot. I don't know. And maybe this would be a great thing to hear in the comments from you guys if you have a theory on any of this. But maybe just feeling something for Anita sort of maybe made him feel like that he needs to make sure like where he's a little more resigned to if price is going to screw up, then he can screw things up. But if this thing goes sideways, you know, there could be ramifications uh, somehow that like that price contacted Mike or you know, I think that he just wants to make sure everything gets done right. Maybe sort of like the cement where he doesn't want to let other people do things that he just wants to take everything on himself because he's the only person that he thinks can do it right. And price is such a screw up that something is bound to get messed up along the way. It's possible it, that Mike is very famously out on another enterprise in the Breaking Bad universe that he eventually switches positions on and gets back in on. And it is that switch of positions and that getting back in on that deal that ultimately leads to his demise in the story. So it is that similar thing that's happening here where Mike is out on a deal that he probably correctly reads he should be out on. 
The money's not that good. He doesn't need the money. And he pivots. Now, in Breaking Bad, he pivots because he needs the money for Kaylee. Like, people are closing these nets around him. They take money away. Like, he has this nest egg built up that he wants to build back up that's been taken from him. And so the way to do that is, unfortunately, to make a really tough business deal he doesn't want to make. That is not the situation here. It, it clearly, the the amount of money in play is nothing. And so I don't know if it's a Mike Mike's reaction. And you talk about people versus the system. What we heard in that episode five zero, the great episode from season one, which is the backstory of what happened with Mike's son and Mike feeling responsible, is that the system that was in play there was graft. It was police taking bribes. It was just like, go along to get along. And his son didn't want to do it. And Mike's role in that and Mike's feeling like part of that and contributing to that is why Mike feels like he he is responsible for his son's death. He feels like the system that Mike basically told him to to, to participate in a certain way or to not participate in a certain way and all of that, that that system is what ultimately rejected his son who wanted to be a good person and that therefore it's your humanity in the face of these systems that does you in. And yet here we have all these things that are going on without Mike. Nacho is making this plan without Mike. Price is making a plan without Mike. And then they try to bring him into it and Mike is rejecting it. But then Mike's humanity is what brings him back. I think, I mean, I, I think it's just that she tells him a moving story that he's in that group, that he feels a connection with her on some level. And that the moving part of that story is why ultimately he says, ah, I can't let this go on. Like these people are ahead of their skis. Price could go down to Varga. Varga could go down to Salamanca. Varga could go down to the police. Varga could go down to Frank. Like there are so many people in play and I think his instinct is right, right? Because when he hears why Nacho wants to do it, it is a humane reason. It's that he doesn't want his dad involved. And that's the kind of thing where I think Mike can understand that. And Mike can really say, okay, well, you know, even though I wasn't going to do it myself, you, you better switch those pills out. Like, mm-hmm. I think Mike understands the reasoning for it. And he's tried to talk him out of it a little bit, but he gets it. And so there's, it's a complex thing. I think Better Call Saul is just frankly a really good show a lot of the time, Rob. And I don't think there's one real reason. I think there's a lot going on with Mike here. There's a lot going on. And I'm sure that the story of Nacho looking out for his father also uh, is the right note to strike with Mike. Right. Because the other is the flip side, right? Where Mike was the, the dirtier one who didn't want to necessarily drag his son into it. So there is a lot of that uh is it cat Stevens or like cats in the cradle kind of fathers and sons, sons and fathers going on there. Uh, and that is something that is a sore spot for Mike for sure. Okay. And that's about it for the expenses episode of better call. Saul. Any, anything else from this episode that we haven't touched on? No, I really, uh, I really thought that there, even though there wasn't a ton happening from a narrative standpoint, in terms of advancing the plot a ton, there was a lot going on here. Uh, it was probably one of, if not the darkest episode of Better Call Saul. We saw Kim at her darkest. I think we saw Jimmy as as dark as we've seen him. We saw what was happening with uh, the stories that Mike was hearing, and then where that takes him. I think it was a really dark episode of Better Call Saul, Rob. Not a week that I needed a dark episode of Better Call Saul. Yeah. 
with what we've talked about going on on the leftovers. So this is a very difficult uh, episode, but I think an important one. Last week, moving the chess pieces around. This week, showing what the real dimensions of those pieces are and the lengths they're going to be willing to go to to finish this end game on multiple fronts, whether it's with Salamanca, whether it's with Chuck. Uh, it's just not... I, we're, I think we're building to a conclusion of season three that's going to be a lot darker than any of us want. That certainly seems how it feels like for me right now. Right. I really do feel like over these next three episodes that uh, Jimmy McGill is being pushed into a corner and he's going to do something uh, very dark and desperate here uh, over these next couple of weeks. Yeah, they're, they really seem to be setting us up for that. Uh, and it's just a question of like whether we're going to get there right away, how quickly that's going to happen. Uh, I just don't know. Uh, I don't know where that goes. But it's not uh, – it doesn't seem like the, the runes are aligning in a way that is favorable for this story for the rest of this season. It's a show that can be funny and will always be funny. But the, it's always saddest when a clown is crying, I think. Like this is the Pagliacci moment. Like uh, – what, what do you do when you're Jimmy McGill and you are a Pagliacci? Like, who do you go to for that relief? And he doesn't have anybody. And we're Crazy Joe Davola? Crazy Joe Davola. Yes, that, that is what's happening here. But I, I really, it's hard to see a clown crying, Rob. Like, this is a sad clown for Jimmy McGill. And that it is more poignant as a result. And it's just really difficult. It's just, I, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And what quote unquote better is a broken Jimmy McGill. So I'm not sure it's ever going to get better. It's This is a very interesting thing. We see the gene part is the, is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, perhaps uh, for the potential for this show to end on a lighter note, because where we're headed is not a good direction. Antonio, uh, where we're headed is for a week without better call Saul. Talk about a dark turn of events. Yeah, talk about your classic blind sides. Who, for, who, who knew it was Memorial Day? Uh, this is uh, probably a well-deserved week off after all the intensity of the last few weeks. Uh, and we'll be back uh, on all cylinders when they return. So we have a week off in store for this podcast, but then we'll be back in two weeks to talk about episode number eight. Where do you think we go next week or two weeks? <laughs> next week, we go on vacation. We go to a barbecue. Yes, we're going to a BBQ. Yeah, that's what's happening. Uh, two weeks, it seems like uh, the thing about the Jimmy and the commercials thing is he's going to need that money. Like the immediacy of that storyline is not resolved. So I think we could get to a position even next episode where Jimmy is willing to resort to some more criminal means to perhaps obtain some of this, uh, obtain some of this money. And does he go back to the vet looking for work this time instead of looking for someone to do work for him? Uh, does he pivot back to uh, some other characters who we haven't seen for, in a while uh, that maybe are criminal in some way that Jimmy had relationships with? I don't know about that. Um, he he probably feels like Nacho might kill him, but it seems like he could place a call to Nacho at some point and be like, okay, I'm willing to uh, to go to some great lengths for you at this point. Like, what can I do? He might still be worried about Nacho. There might not be too much trust there, but again – we saw Nacho go back to Price after there was all of that that had happened between the two of them in this episode. So it's not without the realm of possibility that Jimmy could go back to Nacho in a similar fashion and just think, you know what? Take the personal stuff out of it. This is just business. Let's do some business. So we could bring them back together. Uh, and Amanda Fallon had asked us about that. Do we see Jimmy falling back into the Mike and Nacho storyline? I think there's a possibility that could happen. Reunification. Yes, the unification. The timelines are aligning, Rob. We're going to bring it in together. Yes. Okay. So exciting stuff. A lot to do in the next three hours of uh, Better Call Saul. Antonio, do we have a hashtag? 
Ooh, uh, Sklar guitar. I don't know. Sklar do you guitar. Any, do you have any other uh, yeah. suggestions? <laughs> uh, no, that's it's pretty good. Uh, let's go with that. Or uh, anything about the Elite Package? Yeah, well, you got to be careful with that. You don't want to hashtag Elite Package. Yeah, you can get blocked pretty easily talking about yes. that on uh, social media. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm staying, uh, I'm staying above the fray on that one. Uh, staying above the J fray on that one. I want no part of that. Okay, all right. Sklar Guitar. And uh, there you go. So uh, we will look forward to your comments on postshowrecaps.com. You can also email the show, bcs at postshowrecaps.com. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash bcs iTunes. Your feedback and star ratings, always appreciated. Uh, you can follow the great Antonio Mazzaro on Twitter. He is at AC Mazzaro with two Z's, one R. I'm at Rob Sisterino. Antonio, anything else? That'll do it, Rob. Thank you so much. Good week. Fun All times. Right. Everybody, take care. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.